Protecting human rights is one of the core issues of the United Nations and is the mission of such agencies as Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. Tracking human rights violations, however, can be difficult and dangerous. It often involves researchers traveling to conflict zones or countries in transition in order to document victim experiences and gather data. Increasingly, activists and researchers are turning to sophisticated technologies, including machine learning tools, in order to analyze human rights data. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's departments of statistics and media, journalism, and film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, chair of media, journalism, and film. Our guest today is Megan Price. Price is the executive director of the Human Rights Data Analyst Group, or HRDAG, which is a nonprofit organization based in San Francisco. It works with human rights groups to figure out what questions can be answered with quantitative data or how such data can be used to help people better understand human rights issues. Thank you so much for being here today, Megan. Thank you. Can you just tell us to, to begin the conversation how human rights data analysis group, or again, HRDAG, started? Sure. It's uh, a little bit of a a long evolution, actually. The work started with my colleague and co-founder, Dr. Patrick Ball, uh, in the early 1990s when he discovered that the the thing he had to offer um, some of the the problems that he was seeing was his his skill as a computer scientist. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, he started this work formally at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And that was where he and his team first started using the name HR DAG. And then as they, over uh, a few years, started to outgrow um, their, their, their very welcoming place there at the AAAS. Um, they found a second home at another nonprofit that does technology for good here in California called mm-hmm. Benetech. Mm-hmm. And uh, the team was incubated there at Benetech for um, ultimately nine years. And so then it was just in 2013 that Patrick and I rolled out HRDAG as an independent organization. Uh, and, and that is the, the state we're in today. So how did you get involved in human rights data analysis, Megan? So I have a background in public health. My PhD is in biostatistics. And it was at public health school that I knew I wanted to do some kind of social justice work. And I started learning about human rights as a formalized field that that could be be studied and and research conducted in this formal way. And it was through some of my courses there in graduate school that I learned about the work Patrick Ball was doing and that I learned about HR DAG. And I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time, right around the time I was finishing my dissertation. HR DAG uh, got a grant that enabled them to create a full-time position for a statistician. And I applied and never looked back. So what are the kinds of things that you're doing there at HR DAG? 
So the kinds of things that I personally am doing, my two main projects are focused right now in Guatemala and Syria. And each of those is a little bit different in terms of the data source and the methodological approach. So in Guatemala, there's a historic archive from the National Police, and it's literally this warehouse full of documents. And the challenge there was how can we learn about the content of these documents uh, as quickly as possible? And so we were asked to, well, when we were asked that question, we partnered with some volunteers from the American Statistical Association who helped us design a random sample of this very large disorganized collection of documents. And so that's been one of my, my main projects is analyzing that random sample and, and drawing inference about the content of that archive. And then one of my other main projects is working with documentation groups um, based in or from Syria who are recording the names of victims who've been killed in that ongoing conflict. And in that project, I'm primarily using the methods of what's called record linkage, and what we call multiple systems estimation to essentially identify records of victims that have been reported to one or more of those sources and then use the, that pattern of documentation to estimate the total number of people who've been killed in that conflict. So Rosemary mentioned uh, the, that work at the intersection of statistics and human rights can be dangerous. And you're talking about Syria here and you're talking about countries that are in conflict. Um, can you talk about some of those? And I'm thinking about, you know, what happens when governments don't like the data? Um, yes. Well, I would say by and large, most of the risk is taken on by our partners who we work with, mm -hmm. who do the actual collecting and storing and managing of the data. And that can very often be be very risky for for exactly the reason you just stated. Sometimes states in power are are not happy about that particular data collection. Um, somewhat less frequently, they're not happy about uh, our data analysis. Mm -hmm. um, but usually, by the time a project gets to that stage, by the time we're trying to answer a quantitative question with statistical analysis, um, usually it's post-conflict and there's been some kind of a transition. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we do still have to deliver an answer that is unpopular, um, but there's usually some kind of infrastructure in place um, or there's a different audience for that answer. Um, it may not necessarily be getting delivered directly to the state in question. It may be getting delivered to the United Nations or to a truth commission or, or a local NGO. Very good. Thank you. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today, using data to track and analyze human rights violations. I'm Rosemary Pennington. In the studio with me are Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our guest today is Megan Price, Executive Director of the Human Rights Data Analysis Group. Uh, Megan, I was watching a video um in preparation for this, in which you mentioned the importance of sort of approaching this work uh, from an interdisciplinary um, uh, context. Why do you think it's important to do the work that you're doing, that it has to be interdisciplinary in nature or should be? Yeah, I think it absolutely has to be. And I think 
for me personally, that's that's why I became a statistician. Um, I want to work on difficult and interesting problems. And the way that our analysis has meaning and can be useful is by collaborating with local field experts and also um, local substantive experts who can not only help us interpret the data that we're analyzing, but then help breathe life into the interpretation of the analyses once we've completed them. And I, I don't think any one of us alone can can really do a sufficient job of, of telling the particular story of our work. I think we all have to collaborate together to, to identify the question that's most um, meaningful and most useful, and then to actually figure out what to do once we have the answer to that question. So I'm curious, how do how do problems come to HR DAG? You know, who are the clients for HR DAG's work? Yeah, it really varies. Uh, for the longest time, I used to say, and and this is still true. My my colleague Patrick Ball is is quite well known in this field, and um, it it was sort of a joke, but but it is true that sooner or later for anyone who was working on human rights violations or in a post-conflict area who had a little bit of data or who was thinking about data, um, someone would eventually say to them, you know, you should really call Patrick. And <laughs> to a certain extent, that's that's still how, how projects come to us is is that folks um, know us and know our work and, and will suggest that, that someone reach out to us. Um, but sometimes also it's, so I think of that as sort of a push, folks who come to us. Um, sometimes it's it's also a pull. Sometimes we'll uh, read a news story or be aware of a certain situation that that we care deeply about and feel like our particular skill set could could provide some added value. And so then we'll start reaching out to to our various partners and contacts at advocacy organizations and and start asking, hey, is anybody collecting data about this? Is anybody thinking about doing an analysis? Is is there some role that we could play? So could you clarify that for Guatemala and Syria? Sure. So in the case of Syria, um, the UN, the United Nations approached us um, in early 2012 uh, because they found themselves in, in this unique to them situation where they couldn't safely get people on the ground to conduct investigations and to collect their own data. And they were aware of these other organizations that were collecting information, um, but there were multiple of those organizations, and they they didn't the United Nations didn't really know what to do with those multiple sources of information and and kind of how to um, how to integrate them into into a whole. Um, and so that was really the way the problem was presented to us: was we have these lists, what should we do? And we kind of said that is exactly our wheelhouse. Let us help. Um, and in the case of Guatemala, Patrick had been working in Guatemala for uh, not for years at, at the point that the archive was discovered in um, 2005, and we were invited to come work with them a year later. Um, and so many of the folks involved with with the National Police Archive were aware of Patrick and HR DAG and, and our work. Um, and so they reached out to him for for help in trying to figure out what was what was the best way to to make sense of this this massive amount of data. I I suspect that a big part of your work is trying to explain to audiences, uh, whether they're government, uh, whether they're journalists, who don't understand what it is you do or don't understand statistics and data, 
So talk about some of the challenges of trying to explain to a more general audience um, the work that you do and your findings. Yes. Oh, my goodness. That is that is both one of the hardest parts and one of my favorite parts of my job. And I think in in my case, the the training that I got teaching stats 101 to uh, public health grad students um, is really what what prepared me for that and, mm-hmm. and what made me really love it, um, because I, I think that uh, explaining this work to folks who might come to these conversations with with preconceived ideas about statistics being intimidating or hard to understand or boring. Um, I just I just love winning those people over. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that you're you're absolutely right. And that it's been interesting to watch the evolution of data journalism, um, because mm-hmm. I think that these days, journalists are some of our most receptive audience members, and they often do really have the patience to to hang in there with us and listen to all of our caveats and and to publish an interval rather than a single number. Um, not always, but we're, we're we're finding a lot more success with that. Um, and then I would say at Another challenging audience that that we've really learned better how to communicate with is is when we're explaining in a courtroom the the kind of analysis that we've done um, to judges and to lawyers, mm-hmm. um, and that mm-hmm. that is that is very challenging because a courtroom wants a very very narrow, very specific set of facts, mm-hmm. um, and so that's right. really how we've learned to to narrow our analysis down to the specific question at hand. So when you're explaining this, there's there's always going to be some kind of uncertainty or variability in these estimates. How do you yes. how do you communicate this in a way that people don't say, well, there's so much variability. I mean, we can't say anything. How do you how do you combat that in telling these very important stories? Yeah, that to a certain extent is the million dollar question, and unfortunately, sometimes that is our our answer. Our answer is we really don't know, and and I think that's one of the most frustrating times is when there's so much uncertainty that to tell the truth and to be transparent about what we know, we have to say we don't know. Um, but in other cases, I would say that when when people reflect back to us, well, there's there's so much noise or we just can't draw this conclusion. Um, we really do push back and and try and say, well, but if you if you look at this distribution or if you look at this interval, um, we can show that they're non overlapping or we can show that there's a statistically significant difference between you know this relative risk and that relative risk. And and we do in those cases tend to rely on some statistical jargon to try and. Um, emphasize the point that that no these we can draw some conclusions and what the uncertainty is enabling is us to identify when we can when we can say that there's a difference and when we can't sure that's that sounds critical uh, uh, you know you, <laughs> you know it's, and that's the challenge for this and, and and being honest about the uncertainty is part of the credibility of the work that you do I'm sure you mentioned before too uh, about some of the some of the ways that you have to translate this to journalists uh, for them to understand. Can you talk a little bit about mistakes that you see journalists make that are frequent or things that they might do better? Yeah, one of the one of my own personal pet peeves, and unfortunately, I, I don't have sort of a good solution to it, uh, is maps. Um, I, I understand that maps are very compelling. They're very interesting. As soon as we have any sort of geographic information, we want to put it on a map to tell a story, to convey what's happening. Um, but very frequently 
when you when you draw a map and you put you know shading or circles or what have you on a map there are blank spots and mm -hmm. i always want to know is that spot on the map blank because in fact whatever it is that you're measuring was didn't happen there so there was no violence there or there was no drug use there or whatever or is it blank because you just don't know about that region because you didn't have access to it mm -hmm. or because it's mountains and nobody lives there um and and i think it's really hard to figure out how to explicitly convey that difference with the visual presentation of a map mm -hmm. because all of us we want to see those patterns and our eyes are drawn to clearly there's a problem here and it looks okay over there um and and so there, I don't have a good solution to that other than using fewer maps, which is not a good solution. Um, but, but that's one of the things that I, my eye always tends to get drawn to is, is thinking about, well, what did that data really look like at the beginning? Mm -hmm. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about data and human rights. So what advice would you give, Megan, to journalists who are um, you know, hoping to report or trying to report on some of the data that your group is producing. Well, how would you, what advice would you give them to sort of suss out what the story is in the data? That's a great question. Um, you know, I guess the advice that I would give is, um, it's not really advice. It's, it's more of a wish. Um, <laughs> I, I would wish for journalists to have the lead time to ask a lot of questions and then the the print space to to tell a, a more complicated and nuanced story mm. and, and i think that one of the things that's hardest is that I, I think those are the stories journalists want to tell and i think that unfortunately sometimes they are on a tight deadline and they they just need a soundbite and they just have a headline and a little blurb and mm -hmm. and they, you know, they don't have the space or the patience for the five caveats that I'm going to give them. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I think journalists would also like that space, too. Absolutely. You know, in, in your article I, that you wrote in Significance magazine a, a while back, you you had mentioned kind of a, the, the idea of document dynamics versus conflict dynamics. Mm. And and that was a you know I I had not have I had not thought about uh, dynamics being modified by either of those words. Mm -hmm. So so could you talk a little bit about what what does that mean to talk about do document dynamics and conflict dynamics? Absolutely. So one of the things that we think about, and by think I mostly mean worry about the most mm -hmm. on our team, is what about because we were primarily studying conflict, what is it about the conflict itself that is affecting our ability to measure the violence that we're trying to measure? And so specifically, when I talk about conflict dynamics and documentation dynamics, what we see over and over again are these cases where the violence increases and the security situation worsens. And yet reports of violence decrease, hmm. specifically because it becomes impossible to do that documentation work. It's too unsafe. And in no way is that a criticism of the groups who are doing this incredibly important and difficult work. It's, it's just reality. It's just what happens during a conflict. And so if all we're doing is 
relying on what we're able to see and record at some of the most crucial instances of a conflict, we may get exactly the wrong idea because we haven't made use of our statistical tools to estimate what we don't know. Hmm. Cool. That that's what a what a what a hard problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard problem, but you know, statistics is sort of built for it. Um, we just we just have to use our tools. Mm -hmm. How how much is the you know we talk a lot, especially those of us who teach journalism, about the whole distrust or that comes, I think, partly from the polarization, the the fake news movement, the distrust of science, the distrust of data. Has this, how has this changed the way you think about what you do and what you actually do? And how often does this come to play in, the, in, in, in your everyday life? Yeah, I don't know that, that fake news specifically has had uh, a big impact on our work, but, but something that I think of as being related to that is this paradoxical reaction that we see people having to data and graphs and visualizations and this kind of thing is that they both um, think they they must be true, whatever they are, and, mm. and sort of accept them unquestioningly and don't have any skepticism and, and just, you know, assume that that is the story. And also don't really have a lot of understanding of how the data were collected and and have... Um, very often have this sort of, uh, oh, I hated statistics class and I don't, I don't want to kind of dig deeply into what that means. And I'm a little intimidated and a little, um, uh, you know, I feel negatively about like the, the way that's being used. Um, and so that's often one of the challenges that we have to figure out how to walk where we know that, a quantitative result is going to be given a lot of weight in terms of evidence, mm -hmm. um, but that we also have to give our audience the tools to evaluate whether or not that weight is appropriate. This brings me to a question that I've been thinking a lot about, especially in relation to the talk I, I mentioned earlier. You brought up, I think, towards the end of that short little talk, the idea of bias in data and how... Um, with the tools that we have available, sometimes we can lose sight of the fact that sometimes data can be biased um, mm -hmm. and that we can import those biases into our analyses. So um, how would you suggest researchers or, or people who are doing um, analysis on, on maybe data sets that are, 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 are touchy or, or like the police brutality stuff that you talked about a little earlier or human rights violations, how can, how can we as researchers um, think about bias and sort of mitigate bias as we sort of import the data and analyze it. Mm -hmm. I think we, it always has to come back to the data. And, and I think we always have to ask ourselves, how is this data collected and how is it generated? Mm. And those yeah. may or may not be the same thing. And, and related to those questions, what's missing from this data? And, and I think actually police data is a really good example to use because it has been in the news a lot more, and I think folks are starting to get a lot more skeptical about the way that data is collected and what it really can tell us. Because if you think about arrest data, on the one hand, hopefully, it accurately represents a complete picture of the arrests that police 
have conducted. Mm -hmm. But an arrest is not synonymous with a crime. Because some crimes lead to an arrest and some crimes don't. And whether or not that crime leads to an arrest is a very complicated process related to what the crime is, the characteristics of the person who perpetrated it, the characteristics of the police force in that area and their relationship to that community, um, and the local laws and policies in that community. And and so that that's a lot less clear uh, when what you're what you're looking at is just a count of arrests, and it's kind of hard to necessarily untangle um, all of the processes that led to the data that you that you have that you observe. So one one thing we often ask guests when they they come on the stats and stories is about st- what students might do to prepare to do the kind of work that you do. So so what kind of advice, what kind of guidance might you give them? Well, this is my own bias as someone with three degrees in statistics, but I take some <laughs> statistics classes. Um, John you know, likes no, no, no argument here, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, I do. I do think that that is the best place to um, to be pushed to to think hard about where your data come from and and how they were generated. Um, take some programming classes. That's, I did not take enough in grad school. I did a lot of my programming learning on the fly on the job. Um, and, uh, and I think I would have been a lot better off, uh, taking some programming classes. Um, and then I would also say, you know, to whatever extent you can within your program, design a curriculum of electives that you're excited about. Think about the kinds of problems that you want to tackle and then go take those classes. And maybe they're journalism classes, maybe they're law classes, maybe they are um, public health classes, maybe they're economics classes. Um, but, but you know, really branch out. And, and school is, is the time to, to take some of those risks and to go sit in on, on something that just sounds interesting, even if it maybe doesn't seem like it's directly on your career path. So, Talk about writing there. I've read some of your essays. You're a very good writer. So where, oh, well, did, thank you. where did you learn how to do that? How did that get folded into all the statistics classes you've taken over the years? Um, well, I was a journalism minor. In oh. Ah, oh boy, there you go. <laughs> these, these guys are going to be tough to live with now, Megan. <laughs> that explains a lot. Sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. I, I have to. I have to also give some credit to uh, to my mother, who is oh. also a journalist and a copy editor, um, and my college roommate, who is uh, an English major, and she read everything I wrote. And to this day, when I proofread things. I can still see her writing in the margin. So, with the big question, I haven't made my point yet. (laughs) All right. Well, Megan, thank you so much. Well, thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. Indeed. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.